Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. My name is Shadi Nabhan, and I am the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. I am also an adjunct professor at the University of South Carolina in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Outcomes Sciences. This podcast is dedicated to precision oncology, precision medicine, and advances that hopefully would translate into improvements in the outcomes of patients with cancer. Today's podcast is with Laura Holmes Haddad. She is a wonderful, wonderful patient advocate. She advocates for cancer patients and for precision medicine and precision oncology. And she has every right to do so because Laura herself is or was a patient a breast cancer patient who was diagnosed with very aggressive type of breast cancer. I really believe hearing Laura's story, her experience, and what she went through is going to help put everything in perspective for you, our listeners, whether you are a patient, whether you are an advocate, whether you are a physician, whether you are an executive, wherever you are working. At the end of the day, everything that we do is about patience. And as you have heard me say before, we are all either past patients, current patients, or future patients. We are all patients. And what we do ultimately has to impact and help our patients. This month, October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I couldn't be more delighted and honored than hosting Laura Holmes Haddad on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure of mine to host Laura Holmes Haddad on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I have not met Laura personally, but I have been a big fan and admirer of her work on the patient advocacy side, and I followed her on social media. And I really thought it is so fitting to have her on the show to talk a little bit about her personal journey, about her story, and how did she come in touch with precision oncology, and what's really precision oncology to Laura and to patients at large. So, Laura, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I am very grateful that you took time to join us and to talk to us about your personal story. Uh, and I know that uh, talking about this could bring sometimes memories that could be a little bit uh, emotional. So I appreciate you willing to talk to us and, and go down memory lane. So for folks who don't know you and are hearing you for the first time, Maybe a little bit about you and who you are and um, how did this all start? How did the journey with cancer start for you? And thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be able to share my story. And always, I always do it with the intent of helping other cancer patients. So I'm so thrilled to be here. So I was 37 when I got the news that I had stage four inflammatory breast cancer. It was the day after Thanksgiving. And I always like to set it up by saying, I actually didn't feel well for about six months before that. 
Um, but I had two kids, uh, actually a four and a half year old. And my son was only about 10, nine, 10 months when I started to not feel great. And I thought, oh, I'm a busy, tired mom. The changes that I felt and saw in my breast, I thought were from breastfeeding. But as the months went on, I decided to see a physician because my left breast, I was having a lot of pain and I was not nursing anymore. And when she saw me, though, she, my primary care physician said that you probably have mastitis, diagnosed me with that, gave me antibiotics, but told me to see a breast surgeon just to be sure, because she said, I don't do enough breast exams. I really want you to, to be extra careful go see the surgeon. So I still didn't feel well. And I turned out I had a low grade fever. And when the pain got so bad, I went in to see the breast surgeon. This was the Monday before Thanksgiving. And she took one look and said, you know, I'm concerned, did a biopsy, a mammogram. And I went home that Wednesday and prepared for Thanksgiving. And I was up all night that Thanksgiving and Friday morning, I woke up in such pain and I called the surgeon and said, can I just have more pain medication? I'm not, still not feeling well. And she was sorry. She said over the phone, she was traveling for Thanksgiving, but I, are you sitting down? Um, I'm sorry to do this on the phone, but you have advanced breast cancer and you need to drive immediately to the emergency room. Um, the oncologist on call is waiting for you and we probably have to begin Uh, chemotherapy this weekend. So my mom took the kids, my husband drove me to the hospital, and that really began that what ended up being almost four or five years of trying to get the right treatment and recovering from all the treatment that it involved. So that weekend, we learned that I had inflammatory breast cancer, which is a very rare form of breast cancer. It affects 5,000 women a year in the U.S., primarily African-American women. And um, the tumor, the pain that I was having, actually an 11-centimeter tumor in my um, left breast, it involved um, clavicular nodes and axillary nodes, and eventually they found um, a rib lesion. So I was at my community oncology center. Um, My family decided that because my age, I was 37 at the time, that I needed to get a second opinion. Uh, We flew to MD Anderson Breast Center and got a second opinion there. We then got a third opinion at UCSF because I live in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And I always like to mention this too, because I had young children and because my family was in the Bay Area, although we considered moving to another place to get treatment, Ultimately, we made a lot of decisions based on how close things were to our house, to our kids, to my family. It was very difficult as a patient to imagine leaving or relocating everyone, Um, although obviously you'll do anything to save your life. The everyday interaction with your family still comes into play. So we ultimately decided that we would start chemotherapy at my community Cancer Center. They started me on AC, otherwise known as to other patients as the Red Devil. I started chemotherapy in mid-December and about to start my second round of AC, which was, by the way, just 
No, nothing prepares you for chemotherapy, I should add. Did you feel as you're going through the process, did you feel as a patient you had enough educational resources to understand about the disease and so forth? Obviously, you go on the internet and you try to do your best and you ask. And I think we both can agree that there's a level of sophistication that differs between patients and there are people who may not have even internet. I mean, that's the reality of things. And nothing prepares you, like you said, But as you go through the AC and you're going to tell us what happened after that, did you feel there are enough educational material and resources for you as a patient and as family member? I relied 98% on my family and extended family to do the research for me. I was in so much pain and on so many medications that I could not have done that on my own. There's simply no way feeling the way I did physically and mentally. I am so fortunate that I have a husband and a sister and a father who are researchers by nature and wouldn't take no for an answer. And they did the research and called everyone that they knew. And without them, there is simply no way that I would still be alive. There's just so much, especially if you have a more rare cancer, there's so much to learn. And when time is of the essence, which it was in my case, given that they caught it so late, it really does matter so much that you have someone in your life, whether it's a family member or, or it's, you know, whoever it is that you can rely on to do research for you. I cannot emphasize that enough. And especially when my story, my case took a turn, which was about to start my second round, I had noticed more changes in my breast because this type of cancer presents with external changes. So I noticed another lump externally and it turned out that the cancer was growing through despite the treatment that I was not responding to the AC chemotherapy. So at that point, my community oncologist told me in the patient waiting room with my sister and said, there's nothing more we can do for you. You need to go back to wherever you got a second opinion that they didn't know about trials. And this is what I'm finding. You know, there's no way that really any oncologist can keep up with so much research for all these types of cancers. So we drove from her office, the 17 miles to University of California, San Francisco, and met an oncologist that I had met when we had gotten my second opinion. And he spends most of his time researching. And this ended up being a huge just a miracle for me to be connected with an oncologist that was really on top of the latest cancer, breast cancer research. So he immediately did genetic testing. Um, I found out that I was BRCA2 positive as well as uh, the tumor was ERPR positive, HER2 negative. Uh, And I like to mention that, that learning as a patient that you want to be positive in your outlook, but negative (laughs) in your tests. The real, what that led was knowing that genetic information opened up so many treatment options for me because my doctor, Dr. Moasser, was able to use research that he knew about based on the BRCA information. He connected the research from Dr. Ashworth, who was a a co-founder of the BRCA gene, and then using the genetic material information from my tumor, he was able to recommend he found and recommended a trial that involved a PARP inhibitor that also involved Gemzar and Carboplatin. And he thought that those three drugs together would target my tumor. 
and would reduce the tumor enough to make me a surgical candidate, which was the ultimate goal. So he made the decision to put you on that trial because you were BRCA2 positive and you were eligible to get on that trial. So the trial was looking specifically for BRCA2 positive patients and incorporated a PARP inhibitor because of data support that BRCA2 positive tumors are more susceptible or sensitive to PARP inhibitors. Did you respond well to that chemotherapy plus the PARP inhibitor? How did What happened after that when you got on the trial? So after much struggle of accessing the trial, I was admitted on a compassionate use waiver. And the trial was actually at City of Hope, which is outside of Los Angeles. So I traveled from my home every week to an unknown end point with always a travel companion for six months. And in that time, from when I started and in the six month period, it shrunk my tumor to seven centimeters, which made me a surgical candidate. And then, so for me, it worked so well. I found out later that I was a super responder. So I was one of the few patients that actually responded to that treatment. I then had a bilateral mastectomy and simultaneous salpingo-oophorectomy at UCSF. I also had 19 lymph nodes removed. And then I had 42 days of radiation therapy. And then I resumed the trial drug, an oral capsule form of the drug. Um, I was told I'd be on that indefinitely. And I remained on 800 milligrams of the trial drug until May 2015. And my oncologist said, you know, you've had so many clean scans in there. I was declared no evidence of disease. And so I was able to come off chemotherapy. And I have remained NED since that day up until the current day. And just before we, you came on the show, we were talking about your recent CAT scans. And I'm getting goosebumps as I talk to you about it because I'm, I, nothing makes me happier than a patient who just absolutely has no cancer. I, I can't tell you as an oncologist how gratifying this is. You just had recent scans, right? I did. I had my recent scans in July 2020, and I'm still NED, which is, uh, I can't quite explain how thrilled I am that I was ultimately in the beginning at age 37, given two years to live if the treatment did not work. And I just turned 45, and I've seen my kids grow up, which is the ultimate goal. That's wonderful. And, and, this is, and thank you for sharing that part of the story because it's really, um, I don't think anyone will ever be able to understand what patients go through unless you are a patient. But throughout that story, though, I think from talking to you, you became very interested in the concept of precision medicine or precision oncology because by virtue of you being tested for the BRCA gene, by virtue of the fact you being treated with PARP inhibitor, And what I want to ask you is two things. Number one, as a patient, when you hear of the term precision medicine or precision oncology, what does that mean to you as a patient? And then how are you taking that knowledge right now as a patient advocate? And how are you trying to disseminate the information and teach others about it? I think it's so important to acknowledge the patient education aspect of treating cancer, especially in what I call like more of the modern age of all these new treatments that are becoming available. Before I got diagnosed with cancer in 2012, the only word that I associated with oncology was chemotherapy. The 
lessons that I had to learn, my family had to learn in terms of catching up with the approach to cancer was significant. And when I hear the words precision oncology, if I can go back in time, I would say, well, that means that it's something precise and hopefully that it's, it's just tailored to me, that I won't have to go through chemo that you hope works, but you're just kind of throwing everything at the wall. So now I, what I'm learning is that in the hopes for treating future patients is that what that means is that we can really look at the genetic material and target the treatment just to that particular patient's genetic material. And so that's what I try to do in my advocacy work is really try to help patients really see and really advocate for themselves in terms of asking for the testing and asking more questions that they might not have considered when they first meet with their oncologist. And the ultimate goal is really trying to reach the maximum treatment with the least amount of suffering for the patient. That's my own interpretation because it's really hard, as you mentioned, it's really hard to explain to anyone how physically and mentally difficult it is to receive chemotherapy. But there's always the naysayers, right? I mean, I think in your advocacy world, in your advocacy work, and, and me as an oncologist, there are always the naysayers that you deal with where they say, oh, you know, I mean, that's hype, this precision medicine, this precision oncology, it's exaggerated. We don't need to sequence everybody. We don't need to take a look at any of these things. How do you deal with, and oftentimes these folks really either, they haven't really treated enough patients or they never really experienced a patient journey. But when you hear that, when you encounter that as a patient, how do you deal with naysayers who are not really believers in precision medicine or precision oncology? I believe that I am a living, walking example of it. And that is why I try to speak out as often as I can and, and be an advocate and, and talk to oncologists like you and, and really say, this is what is happening. And even though you may not have experienced it, as a provider, it's out there and we need to really make sure that the education for both patients and providers is available and that um, we're able to give examples of patients that have been successfully treated with precision oncology. That's really the only way, right, to prove them wrong is to say, this is happening, um, even if it's not happening in your exact region, it's out there. And this needs to be more readily available to more oncology patients. And what's the best vehicles you think? I mean, now you've been through the patient journey, and I know some of this sounds vague or feels vague because you were in so much pain and you were getting through a lot of treatments. What are the best vehicles to teach patients, you think, about precision oncology and to teach providers about precision oncology so we could disseminate the importance of this and and obviously in the experienced hands it, it's an important uh, endeavor but uh, as a patient as an advocate where, where where do you think the sweet spots of improving on the educational capabilities and teaching stakeholders about that uh, that field i feel that there are many areas where we can improve the education so for patients i think making sure that they have access to either hopefully the internet and that where they're being treated has provided the information, whether in the patient information that you're given when you become a an oncology patient or making sure that the nonprofits for that specific cancer 
are up to date. I know each specific cancer has very passionate advocacy groups that are often really the first stop for most oncology patients when they need more information. And so I think in that way, you could really get the institutions to partner with the nonprofits and make sure that the information is up to date. But I also think the providers that they need to be um, receiving education in terms of options and referrals, that just because they are not aware of it, that they are able to look outside of their practice and make the appropriate referral, I think is really important. And ultimately, I think although patients always need to advocate for themselves, we can't possibly become bio you know, experts. Like we, there's, that gap will always be real in terms of the science and, and the professional. We can't be doctors. So we need to be, to be aware enough and advocate for ourselves to ask the right questions, to open up these opportunities for treatment that are out there that we just might not be aware of. As a patient, as a survivor, as an advocate, as a, as a mom, as a wife, what do you want to see for the future of precision medicine and precision oncology based on your experience? If you had your futuristic hat or your hopeful hat, a few years from now, if we're sitting down and talking about what you would want to see? I would like to see any oncology patient that shows up at an institution to get immediately get their genetic testing, have a consult with a genetic counselor, have a provider that works with a genetic counselor so that they can discuss the options and see if their treatment would be affected by knowing this genetic material, that this alone would open up so many avenues for treatment and that it really needs to be more accessible to more patients. Particularly, I feel that the younger cancer patients that I know and I work with that are getting these more aggressive types of cancer, that we need to make sure that we all have access to these more, um, what I call more cutting edge approaches to oncology rather than just the standard treatment that might be of offer. And I would like to end by saying that I just hope oncology in general doesn't only depend on your zip code. I had a really incredible moment two years ago when I heard the head of the UCSF Cancer Center say, right now your zip code matters more than your genetic code in terms of surviving cancer. And that's just to me is wrong. And that's what I work towards every day is trying to turn that around. And you're doing amazing work. I, I, I would hope that everybody who's listening to this follows you on social media, looks at your website, which is lauraholmeshaddad.com, which has a lot of important information. And uh, you've also written a book, uh, Laura. Tell us about the book that you wrote. I did write a book. I was at a point where I really wanted to give back um, and really share all the things that I learned as a patient and through my entire journey. And so I wrote a book called This is Cancer, Everything You Need to Know from the Waiting Room to the Bedroom. And it follows from diagnosis through survivorship. And it's really meant to give you really concrete tips, strategies about aspects of cancer that you might not think about, like the random parking fees that you'll have from all of your appointments and you know how, how to navigate helpful people who drop off food to you and all these little insider tips. And so I just makes me so happy when I get feedback that other patients and caregivers have really responded to it, that they 
get something out of it that's useful and helps them in their experience through their cancer journey. I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. I think what you're doing is amazing. You, you've had obviously an unfortunate experience and scenario, but it's behind you. I mean, we're uh, above five years and, you know, it's, it's a, ultimately this is going to be a good 2020, right? Despite all <laughs> the COVID-19 we're dealing with, right? Every day for me is a good day. I'm not going to lie. So yes, I've learned how to weather my fair share of ups and downs. So 2020 is just another blip in the, <laughs> a blip in the calendar. Well, keep up the wonderful work you are doing. I mean, I think patients, uh, providers, uh, everybody needs people like you to make sure we always remember what we are doing and why. That's really, uh, really important. So please keep up the good work that you're doing. And uh, I hope that you'll be willing to visit with us again. Oh, it'd be my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I hope you learned a lot from Laura's story. I hope you get her book and you check out also her website. Her journey is admirable and her advocacy work is also amazing. Laura exemplifies what precision oncology and precision medicine means from a patient perspective and why we do what we do every single day, every single day, every single day. If you need to reach me and send any comments or feedback, send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And until next time, take care.